The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. My prayer for this morning, though, is that John 20, verse 21, will become just as familiar to you as some of these other verses are. My hope is that this one short verse would be written in large letters across the bulletin board of your mind and that would move in and it would grip you and it would produce change inside of you that is significant and life-lasting. That's impossible, though, unless God gives sanctifying grace to you, to me, and changes us, gets a hold of us on the inside and renews us frees us from our fears, changes how we think. It's impossible, given who we are. But with God, all things are possible. That's what we're going to look at today. That's what I'm going to pray for right now. So would you pray with me towards that end, that God would grab you with this verse, with this passage, and especially verse 21, that it would become a verse that your life is centered on. Let me pray. High King of Heaven. Just heard sung that you are our treasure. You are to be our treasure. Would you make that so? God, give grace to us that we would see you as the one our hope is set on. The one we look to and think about and love. And with our hearts set on you, with you as our treasure, would you then conform us to this passage, to this verse, verse 21. Cause us to realize that we have been sent. God, bring that to pass today, I ask you. Make it so in my life, the lives of my friends here. We need your grace, Lord. Would you come? Would you commission the Spirit to be at work in our minds and hearts to give life to my heart, life to my words, life to all people here, that we could hear, hear you and respond to you, believe and obey. God help us, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. Last week in the first half of chapter 20, we saw the first appearance of the resurrected Christ. He appeared to Mary right outside of the tomb in which he'd just been buried three days before. He was dead, he was placed in the tomb, he came back alive. It's an objective fact, we saw that last week. The grave clothes in which he'd been buried lying right there on the stone platform. The cloth wrapped around his head, refolded and placed there. The stone rolled back, all evidence of an event. This is an objective fact that happened in history. It's not some internal impression that I have or that others have. Mary saw him alive, touched him alive. And then he tells her, go to my brothers, the disciples. Tell them that you've seen me. Tell them that I have been raised so as to be raised. I have been raised so as to ascend back up on high to reclaim the robe of splendor that is mine to reign over all things. I'm in the process of ascending. Go tell them that. And she does. 
Surely they heard her. She spoke the same language as them. But it didn't have the desired effect. They're still cowering in fear, locked up in the upper room. And so Jesus is now going to go to them personally. Show himself to them personally. Speak to them himself. That's what happens in our passage today. So we continue on in chapter 20. I'm going to read our passage, a very short one, verses 19 to 23, John 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. The setting here in the passage is still on that first day of the week, on Sunday, the day that Mary saw the Lord. It's the evening of that day, so just a few hours after she'd, after she'd come to the disciples. It's very fresh in their minds. Yet despite this remarkable news, they're still holed up in this room behind locked doors. There's a struggle going on inside of them. They've heard some amazing news, and yet there is strong fear of man. Right now, the fear of man is winning out over them. They are afraid of the Jewish leaders. And then Jesus steps into their midst. The doors being locked. Two doors. One door on the street level, one door on the actual room where they were. The implication is that Jesus just came through the doors. Now as an aside, we learn a little bit of some interesting information about what the resurrection body must be like. Not the main point here, but we learn some interesting things here. There's continuity between a pre-resurrection body and a post-resurrection body. It's physical can be touched. He's going to show them the holes. They're going to touch the holes. He's going to eat. It's physical. He has been bodily raised. It's him. And also, it has some different abilities. This body seems capable of passing through solid objects like grave clothes and doors. So we get just a little hint here of what that body might be like for him and what it might be like for us, but that's not really the main point. Main point is that he appeared to them. And when he appears, he says, Peace be with you. Shalom. Peace. It was a common greeting that people used in that day. But surely here it's a loaded statement. He says it twice. He's not just saying, How's it going there? Good to see you. He doesn't say that twice. He means something in this. You're cowering here in fear of the Jews. And then I appear which would be frightening in itself. I just show up. Am I a ghost? You don't know yet. No, here, I'm physically here. Well, am I here to punish you because you abandoned me? It's a frightening situation. He says, peace. Peace be yours. May harmony, rest, goodness, and righteousness flow onto you and cover over you. That's what that means. It's rooted in the Jews of that day in their hope of the coming kingdom of the Messiah. When Messiah would one day in the future would come to earth and fix everything. 
All famine, all disease, all war, all threat, all crime, everything would end and the world would be at peace. Righteousness outside, rest inside. That's what they hoped for. And so when they would greet one another with this, what they're saying is, may that future peace of Messiah's kingdom, that's not here yet, but would that be the experience of you, friend, today? Peace be to you. And Jesus says, peace. Look here. Here's why you can have real peace. And he shows him his body. Pierced in the hands, the hole in the side. He shows them where he was pierced for their transgressions. And when they see this, the text says they were overjoyed. They were glad. Very glad. Thrilled. You can't imagine what that must have been like. Their heads are just spinning, running on. All that we've heard before about the kingdom, it's here. He is the one. He has been raised. He was killed. Look, he's come back to life. It's amazing. This changes everything. Imagine Peter and John standing there. They just barely dared to believe this in the morning. And now they see it with their own eyes. Here he is alive. It's stunning. Their minds are running on. And he calls them back to his train of thought by saying it again. Peace to you. Not unlike, I think of it like this, a nine and a half month pregnant wife one day suddenly says to her husband, it's time. He says, it's time. And his mind starts going, Phew. I'm going to be a father. I'm going to find out if it's a boy or a girl. If it's a boy, I wonder if I'm going to teach it baseball or hockey, if it likes soccer. If it's a girl, I, I guess we'll play tea party. That'll be okay too. And <laughs> I wonder if I should call our parents. And how am I going to pay for college? His mind's just running on. And she says, come back. It's time. So call the midwife or the doctor or whoever. First things first. I mean for there to be a connection here between saying that it's time and what you're supposed to do next. Didn't know that was funny. <laughs> There's a connection here that Jesus means to establish with them. Peace, the next thing he says, is related. And because their minds have begun to wander off in this excited joy, he says it again. Peace, listen up. And here's the part that I just pray becomes one of those verses that you know. That you know. And that it changes our church. Verse 21. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. This is a key statement in the book, in the whole book of John. It's the culmination of this long sent one theme. Throughout the whole book, we've seen Jesus sent by the Father. And now he here says, peace, I'm sending you. All you upon whom I pronounce peace, I'm sending you. All of you. Without exception. It's a key statement. We'll come back to this. But Jesus continues. He doesn't just send out the disciples. He doesn't just send out us who are at peace with him. He doesn't just send us out alone. He's going to send us with the Holy Spirit. You remember this from chapters 14, 15, and 16 where there was much discussion about the Holy Spirit? How he would be given to believers when the time was right? Well, basically the time has come. Some take verse 22 right here to, to be the Spirit actually coming upon people in a second way, in a different 
kind of a, a prelude, if you will, to the book of Acts, where the Spirit was poured out in power. Some take there to be a little pouring out of the Spirit here. I don't think that's true. It, it's possible, but I don't think that's the case. Let me give you a, a couple of reasons why. I think rather that Jesus is speaking, he's talking about that time when the Spirit's poured out. In, in the text, actually, all of our English translations probably say, he breathed on them. Kind of makes you think there was an event like a sort of thing. But in the Greek, actually, there's no on them. If you're reading the King James, you'll see it's italicized there, indicating that it's not original. It just says, he breathed. I don't think there actually was an, an event here, like a sort of thing. Rather, receive the Spirit. Took a deep breath and said, the Spirit is coming to you. He speaks like this about periods. I think he's speaking about a period. He speaks like this often in the book. The best example is the hour in which the Son is to be glorified. He talks about that hour for a long time. And then finally says the hour has come when the Son will be glorified. But that hour is at least 43 days long. From the point of the cross to the point when he finally ascends to heaven. That's an hour long he means the period. And when he finally says, it's come, it's time for the hour, the hour's here, it's not actually meaning right at that moment, I'm about to be crucified and go to heaven. He means we're at that stage in the plan. Incarnation, teaching, now we're at this stage when I'm glorified and I go back. And the next stage is I send the Spirit. That's where we are now. Time to receive the Spirit. I think he's talking about the receiving of the Spirit as a period then, which is right about now, ready to happen. The last thing worth noting is that if they get the Spirit, nothing really happens in them. You keep reading, they're the same old people until Pentecost. I think that's probably the best evidence, that nothing actually changed in their lives. Rather, the Spirit is about to come on you. And when he does... You're going to go out and carry a message. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they're forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they're not forgiven. Last verse. It sounds very similar to what we read in Matthew about church discipline, where the church pronounces the discipline verdict on the sinful member, and that's the verdict that God has on them too. It's not that the church tells God what to think. It's that God has a verdict. He tells the church, and the church then spreads it. Same idea going on here. But it's a very powerful thing if you think about this. We go out and we carry a message that says to people, repent and believe and you will be saved. If you do not repent and you do not believe, you will not be saved. We don't go out saying, I have no idea how you get saved. This is all really unclear. Good luck. That's not our stance. Our stance is authoritative. These are the grounds on which one is forgiven. Any other grounds, you are not forgiven. We say that kindly, graciously, but authoritatively. This is the verdict of God. If you have repented, you're forgiven. If you haven't, you're not. The church in its message Christians individually in their message proclaim that to a person such that I can say because of your genuine repentance you're saved 
Because you have not repented, you are not saved. And that is true. That's the verdict of God. Not because I decided it, but because that's what he says he decides the verdict on. That's the message we carry. To that mission of proclaiming that message in the power of the Holy Spirit, rooted in that kind of messianic peace, the peace come on a person, that mission, heralding God's salvation, that's what we're called to. Each of us, all Christians, sent. Christ aims to have His gospel proclaimed everywhere, all across the globe, to every corner, to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, everywhere. And He does it through us. Here's the main point from this morning. Embrace this mission of Christ as your mission. He's on a mission. He has a mission. Embrace it. That's the impossible thing that God must do in us to convince us to set aside our own agendas and our own goals and our own hopes and to embrace His mission. To see yourself as really, really as sent Embrace that. I'm going to focus on two points that drive towards that main theme. Two points come out of this passage. Really, both of them can be found in a nutshell in verse 21. Let's look at the first one. And this should be just plain. This should be obvious from this passage. First point, I've just been talking about it. If you're a Christian, Christ has given you a mission. If you're a Christian, you are on mission. Not if you're a Christian with the gift of evangelism. Not if you're a Christian called the mission. The question is not, am I on mission? The question is, how am I? Where am I? In what manner am I on mission? You've got to ask all those questions to figure yourself out and know what God has for you in particular. But you first must be convinced, I am on a mission. I'm sent. Verse 21, Jesus re-engages his disciples pulls him back onto his train of thought and says, As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Throughout the whole book, Christ was sent. What's he doing? He's sent to reveal God, to make the nature and character, the wonder and beauty of God clear and known, and to reveal us. To make humankind's sin and fallenness clear to us. He's sent to make all that clear and He's sent to go to the cross. Righteousness slain for sin. To provide a way to join those two, God and people, back together. Sent to make a way. Sent to proclaim that the way exists. And the grammar here in that verse says that He still is sent. He says, I am am sent. I'm in the state of being sent. You might look at that and say, didn't you go back to heaven? I get the sent down, but then you went back, right? He says, actually, I'm still sent. I was sent and remain sent. How is that? That's what the second half of the sentence comes in. As I was sent, I also am sending you. 
He's been implying this for several chapters now. Remember back in 15 and 16 where he talked about how I'm going to give you the Spirit who's going to proclaim Christ and and encourage you amidst persecution? He kind of hinted at something there. We're going to be going out and talking about Jesus and facing persecution. And then in chapter 17, he prayed about that specifically. Remember this. As you, Father, have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So it's hinted at. And then overheard in prayer, and now here stated explicitly, I am sending you. And the grammar here is interesting too, because it is an ongoing sending. It's a constant sending. Christ remains in the state of being sent, because you're sent every day, and he lives in you. Get that? You're continually sent day after day after day after day after day. He lives in you. He's carrying out his mission in you. He's still here. He went back, but he's still here, living in you, carrying out his mission. He still aims to reveal the nature and character of God through you. He still aims to reveal the sin and fallenness of other people through you. Maybe through your words, especially through your life as it's lived in contrast. He still declares, whoever hears the word of Christ and turns to him has passed from death to life and lives. Claims that through you, through your words. You bring the authoritative word of forgiveness and condemnation in the power of the Spirit to other individuals. His mission carried out through you. I think that is abundantly clear. I don't know how else you can read that sentence. As I have been sent and remain sent, so I am sending you. What else could that mean? That, I think, is really clear. May that be written in large letters across the bulletin board of your mind. You are sent. There's one thing we are to be about in the words of Paul. Christ and Him crucified. This is your mission. You're sent to proclaim Christ and Him crucified. This is what God is about. It's a huge reason why we're still alive on earth. It's clear. So why, why do we so consistently ignore this? Or at best, try to kind of cram it in in the margins of our life. You know what the margins are. You look at a piece of paper where the writing is, and the margin is the one-inch square around the edge where there's no writing. We try to put this mission in the margins. Because the body of the text is what we're really about what we're really living for, what we're really hoping in. Can't be that way. A little while back, I was playing golf with someone from our church, and we ended up paired up with two random guys there at the golf course, and so we played. And I was playing pretty well. On the second hole, I hit a couple of really nice shots, a, real, a difficult long iron shot, and then another nice chip and a good putt, and, in the fourth hole, a couple other nice shots, and I was really pleased with that. And then in the sixth hole, I made a 35-foot putt for birdie, which is nice for me. It was downhill. It was kind of a little bit left to right. 
perfect speed. If it's 35 feet to the hole, I hit it like 35 feet and two inches. Like on the last revolution, went right into the cup. Those are the kind of things that keep me coming back to the golf course. <laughs> it's really nice. And I thought, this is going pretty well today. I'm pretty happy. And then on the seventh hole, a short par three, which means it's supposed to take you three shots, it was like I was playing ping pong. I hit one in the woods over here, and then I hit one in the woods over here, and then I hit one near the green over there, and finally got on a couple of putts, eight. It's like, ugh, man. And then I limped off that green because I was beginning to develop a blister. So literally, I'm limping, and my game totally fell apart. And when I got home, I'm driving home, and I'm thinking, why do I play this game again? Remind me? Man, who needs this? Now, what's the point of that story? Remember those two guys we were randomly paired with? Remember them? I didn't. That's the point. Like this little story, that two and a half hours of golf was all about me and my game. Some of the highs, some of the lows, they might as well not have been there. Now, I am not saying, and I don't believe God would say that we shouldn't play golf. We shouldn't worship golf. We shouldn't live for golf. But I think we can play golf. Those two guys were on the golf course. They're not coming to visit me in my study. They're not here in church. They're out there living a life, playing golf. We are supposed to go out there and live lives, maybe play golf, do a hundred other things, rub shoulders with people, interact with them. But as you do that, you're thinking, I'm sent. That's written across the bulletin board of your mind, and you're thinking, I'm sent. I'm sent here to this golf course, not to break par or shoot in the low 40s if I can. I'm going to try to do that, but I'm sent here for something else. I'm sent here to make Christ and His cross an issue. In whatever circumstances may arise, Perhaps with these two guys we were randomly paired with, knowing there's nothing random in all the world, maybe I've been paired with these two guys to say one sentence or to have a long conversation. I don't know. Let's see what happens. You see the difference there? You go and do things thinking, I'm sent. You go to the golf course, you go to the grocery store, you go to a restaurant thinking, I'm sent here. What do you have for me? Maybe there's something in this relationship, in this encounter. You go, you're sent on a mission. Two cautions. This does not mean that you have to work or manipulate every conversation into some contrived gospel presentation. Ooh, a bogey. You're not quite par there. Are you on par with God? <laughs> That's going to be a little silly after a while. You don't have to be working everything like that. If I'd engaged those guys, I don't know if anything would have happened. The point is, I didn't engage them. I wasn't looking for any open doors. I didn't pray for any open doors. And you know, I didn't find any open doors. Funny how that works. You go sent, praying and looking and see what happens. I have played golf with other people where I've had a chance to share the whole gospel with them. The difference in mindset that precedes those two encounters. 
It's the first caution. On the other hand, the second caution is don't fool yourself into thinking that you're not going to have to make any sacrifices or any deliberate choices. You're going to have to make choices and sacrifices to spiritually engage people or build relationships that might lead to something down the road. Praying for something to happen as you're going through the normal events of life is one way to go sent. But another way is to deliberately make choices, decisions, sacrifices to interact with people for the sake of the gospel. So you're thinking, I'm going to go to lunch with this coworker. I'm going to go to lunch with her. Not because we were already going to lunch, but because perhaps she doesn't know Christ and perhaps I've been sent to her to tell her about him. You've got to make a choice there. It might involve you picking up the tab. It might involve you giving up a little bit of your free time. But you're doing that for the sake of what may come from it. How can I build a relationship with this person? Not as a headhunter, it's a real relationship, but it's something that might not happen in the normal course of life. You've got to make choices and sacrifices. Take the initiative. We are on a mission. It's a huge part of why we're still here. That's true. You were sent. This is a huge reason why I wanted to preach the book of John, because of this theme. It's woven throughout the whole book, and it comes to a head right here. It's prayer in 17, and then this statement here in 20, verse 21. We are sent ones. Sent on Christ's mission. He's still sent in you. My hope and my prayer is that God would give grace to us to change us, to embrace that, to make us a sent church. Not theologically, theoretically, practically, actually sent. May that happen. If it's going to happen, though, we're going to have to face and overcome one significant barrier. One that is raised in this passage, the fear of man. And that gets us to our second point. There are plenty of barriers to face and overcome, but this is the one that comes up in this passage. So here's the second point. Christ intends to free us from fear, enabling us to embrace that mission. He intends to free us from fear, to unlock us from being bound to fear of man and to set us free to embrace the mission he's assigned to us. I don't mean that you're never going to be afraid anymore. That's not the case. I don't know that I've ever been completely unafraid when I'm going to share my faith or talk to somebody about something spiritual. Even when I talk to Christians about spiritual things, sometimes I'm afraid. It means that the fear is not going to control you and dominate you. It's not going to lock you up, but you're going to be free to go and move beyond that. These guys right now are, are trapped in fear. They're locked up in this room. They've invested tons in Jesus for years, and then he's killed. And so many questions open up. Who is God really? What can we really believe? We were sure, and that seems like it was really wrong. And are we going to die? Are we next? What's going to happen to us? All these uncertainties lead directly to fear, and the text is explicit. They are afraid of those who appear to be calling the shots, human beings, Jewish leaders, men. And Jesus intends to free them and us from that sort of fear. How's he going to do that? Well, what does he do? He walks into their midst, says peace, shows them the wounds, says peace again. That's what he does. How does that free them from fear? Think about this. 
It, it does for a moment. They're overjoyed. They're glad. What happens when he says, peace, Messiah-type peace, look, peace? It moves the gospel and the realities of the gospel to center stage, and it relegates the angry rulers to the wings. Look at this. Now, if you'd pause there, are those guys still angry at you? Well, sure, but my God, look at this. That's what they'd say. Would you look at my God standing right here? Sure, but it moves the gospel to center stage. Gives you that gospel truth to feed your mind on. He highlights the salvation that he's won. He makes it graphic. I was killed. I am alive. Peace. And what runs into their minds is he is the lamb. He is the light of the world. He is life. He is the bread of life. He is the living water. I am at peace with God. Amazing. That's the point of connection between peace, look at the wounds, peace, and then you're sent. He wants them to get they are at peace with God. The truth of the gospel, what it has done in their lives, and then sends them out from that base. Mark this. Write this down. I'll say this a couple times. We must consistently live in the gospel. We must consistently live in the gospel if we are to become consistently emboldened to spread the gospel. We must consistently live in the gospel if there's going to be any hope for us to become consistently emboldened to spread the gospel. That's how he liberates his disciples from fear. He shows them something awesome. Himself and what has happened to them because of himself. That's how he frees us. If you're a Christian, you stand forgiven. You stand in grace. You're no longer an object of wrath, but of mercy. He loves you and has made a new covenant with you. Far better than the old covenant. Based on the sacrifices of animals that had to be done again and again and again and again and again. It kept showing you your sin. And only held out a future hope as to how to deal with that. This is a far better covenant that we're in now. It's a covenant centered on the Lamb, the Son of God Himself. The Son of God Himself sacrificed. The Son of God Himself come to live inside of you and give you liberating life. This is a far better covenant that He has made with you now. Therefore, catch this connection in the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.12, reflecting on this covenant that God has made with you. He says, Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Get the connection there. 
because we have such a hope of a new and shining and glorious covenant that has made peace with us with God. We have that hope, therefore we are very bold. Not, I'm very bold because I'm a bold guy. Not, I'm very bold because I'm a type A personality. Not, I'm very bold because there's more of us than there are of them. Or we're in power, or we have political might. We are very bold because of what the gospel is, what it has done, what's true. And I see that and I live in it. Abiding boldness, overcoming the fear of man, abiding boldness does not come from training. Although training is really good. Training can give you more confidence. Training will help you be more effective. But it does not produce abiding boldness. Nor do a number of friends who are going to get around you and go out with you and pray for you and encourage you. Abiding boldness does not come from that either. It doesn't come from some kick in the pants or a guilt trip laid on you by a preacher. The gospel and its hope must grip you if you're going to, in an abiding way, in a continuing way, overcome the fear of man and be bold in witnessing for him. But you must live in that. What do I mean by live in it? You've got to get up in the morning and somehow or another, through the scriptures, through the spirit given to you, through music, through a devotional guide, through conversation with your spouse or other friends, somehow or another, you get the gospel to come into your mind. Like putting on glasses in the morning. The first thing I do, I feel around in the dark. It's such a habit, I know exactly where my glasses are in the dark and I can find them. Put them on. The first thing I see is through my glasses. You put on the gospel glasses every morning, somehow or another. And then you stand in it all day long. When you face opposition, you remember, who can be against me? I mean, really, who can be against me? God has made peace with me. This guy's not happy. Okay. I'm not trying to irritate him. But this guy's still not happy. Okay, I'm at peace with God. The lamb was slain and lives. It's true. Living in the gospel. Again and again and again, you you make decisions like that. Remind yourself of this truth, so therefore you can be very bold. God is for you. Who can be against you? Christ intends to free us from fear, enabling us to embrace that mission. Frees us from fear by displaying for us the gospel and giving us grace to live in it. May He do that. May He give you grace to help you live in it. Overcome fear. And may you see yourself Above all, see yourself as sent on a mission, Christ's mission. Embrace that for your life as your mission. Let me pray. God, give us grace, please. I think, Lord, that you want to do a work in our church, and I pray that you would do that through passages like this one. 
It's a spirit working us and convince us that we're sent and display the gospel for us in technicolor, that we would be gripped by it and changed by it so as to go out with it. Use us individually. Use us as a church, I pray, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.